0: never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is an Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free free market voice of the U.S. Enhancing and protecting private wealth, Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country.
1: Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host. Gary Rathman. Well, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? Interesting week. A lot of, a lot of stuff going on, for lack of a better term, we'll we'll call it stuff. Before I forget, our website is aneconomyofone one.com an Aneconomyofone dot an As is our Facebook page, an Economy of one. A little bit later in the show, Gordon Chang, one of my favorites, is going to be joining uh, me and talking a little bit about China. Gordon's an expert on. Uh, China, and uh, we'll be talking with him eh, about halfway through the show today, but you won't want to uh, miss Gordon. He's a good guy. Well, well, we've got our candidates. We've got uh, Donald Trump, the presumptive Republican candidate for president this fall, and Hillary Clinton, the presumptive Democratic candidate for president this fall. Found it interesting this week, as I'm sure you did, that the Associated Press of all organizations declared Monday night that uh, Hillary had enough electoral votes to win. She was the presumptive candidate Monday night, even though nobody voted on Monday. Now, was that a ploy, a a tactic to influence the the voters in California on Tuesday? Uh, don't know. Don't know. Not going to say. But uh, if it was, it worked. So that's the the key, I guess. But I'm not going to spend any time today on uh, presidential candidates, and I may not spend any time on them. Between now and, and November, it bores me. I'm still in the none of the above camp. I'm not seeing anything I, I particularly like. I don't see any vision to help our country and and make our country better, to heal it from the last eight, ten years of the path we've been on, but we'll see. We'll see. If something's interesting to me later, I'll talk about it, but I'm sure every radio host in the country is spending time talking about the Donald and Hillary, and I just, like I said, bores the heck out of me. So one thing that did happen this week that I I spent a lot of time on my regional show talking about, and that's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau coming out with regulations for payday lenders. Now, I'm not a payday lender. I've, uh, I've never used a payday lender for anything, but they're essentially short term, generally two weeks or less. Loans at very, very high interest rates, and people get into uh, so we uh, shall we say debt spirals with payday lending. Essentially, you go in there, you write a check, and you post date it, and you post date it for the day of your next paycheck. Hence, the name payday loans. And for a five hundred dollar check $500 advance the next payday which is generally two weeks away you pay $75 so to pay it off in two weeks you have to pay $575 okay that's an enormous amount of interest that's huge amount of interest okay but there's a need in the market for that it fills a void that some people have of needing short-term very short-term credit the average loan is uh, 392 dollars during that time but the consumer financial protection bureau feels that you know what you're just too stupid to know what you're doing if you're borrowing money that way so we're going to regulate it and not only are we going to regulate it we're going to regulate it right out of business and that's what they're going to do they're making it so payday lenders and most of them are storefronts you know you see them in strip malls and that kind of stuff they're not a a bank with a bunch of branches and and that kind of stuff they're they're a, a mom and pop shop uh some of them are franchised but they're essentially in in strip malls and and uh put themselves out there as as community uh lending organizations and and they they do the payday loans, they do the title loans, where you take the title to your vehicle in and they put a lien against it and you borrow money against your, your car. They're also including the buy here, pay here uh, car dealers. You know, you've seen those where you buy a car uh, off the corner lot and every week you go in and, and make your weekly payment on the car. Now, like I said, there's a need for this in the market sadly but true there's a need for this most of these people very low credit score they have no access to to credit anywhere probably don't even have credit cards they can't go to the bank and borrow money so this is a tool that a certain segment of the market can use now they have between a 31 and a 38 percent default rate so if you're one of these lenders you know that one out of three of the loans you give out, you're gonna have a default and probably have to go after them, spend more money, legal fees, and that kind of stuff to get your money back. So you factor that in to the risk. And what happens, people have the best of intentions, they write a $500 check, post date it, two weeks later they can't pay it off, so they pay the $75 to roll the loan forward two more weeks. And what happens people get into a I don't want to say a habit as much as a a uh, uh, a spiral of continually rolling this forward and Congress wants to. the CFPB wants to prevent this from happening so these storefronts are gonna to have to underwrite loans they're gonna to have to determine whether you have the ability to pay it back they're gonna to have to determine Uh, What you're going to use the money for, whether that's valid or not. It's valid. I mean, what they're doing is setting these storefronts, these payday lenders up for lawsuits and and no way of getting their money. I can see the regulators coming in and saying, well, geez, you shouldn't have loaned money to those people to begin with. Uh, It's obvious they couldn't pay it back. You should have known that. You can't go after them. Uh, You just have to eat it. Now, they keep focusing on the interest rate, and there's a lot more to this than just the interest rate. And from the people that I have talked to in the regulatory system, they simply don't understand what they're trying to regulate. They try to convince uh, the public that these loans are 100% secured, that there's no risk. There's no risk. It's a title on a car. It's a a post check. Well, a post-dated check doesn't mean anything if there's no money in the account. The story, uh one of the stories, I don't know, is Wall Street Journal or somebody talking about this. They they highlighted or profiled one person that got caught up in the buy here, pay here and To me, it illustrates exactly the problem, and that is poor judgment. This guy tells the story that he went to a buy-here, pay-here car to buy his son a car for high school graduation. Put a down payment on, and the idea was his son was going to take over the payments after he graduated with his job, and everything's kosher. Well, that's, that's a recipe for disaster right there. So, to me, it's poor judgment, one, buying a kid a car for graduation. My dad could afford to buy me a car at graduation, and he didn't. This guy obviously cannot afford it, and he did it anyway. Most of the financial problems of the poorest sector in our economy, most of their financial problems come from poor judgment over and over and over again. Well, obviously you can tell what, uh, project what happened. The kid stopped making payments. He dropped the insurance on the car and he totaled it. So there was nothing there to repossess. Okay. And so the buy here, pay here dealer went after dad because dad signed on all the paperwork. And it's costing him a small fortune to pay off the car. Well, you know what? Too bad. That's the rules. You read the paperwork, or should have. You should have known what you was doing. And everybody around that deal showed poor judgment. You don't buy a kid a car for graduation. You don't have him take over the payments on his first job. You don't buy from a a high-interest Uh, Buy here pay here unless you absolutely have to so it's it's Characteristic of that sector of the market so The government is going to regulate that business right out of business They're gonna go away because they're not going to go through the hassle a mom-and-pop storefront store Is not going to go through the hassle of underwriting, determining what the money is used for, determining whether the person can pay it back for, on average, a $392 loan. Just not going to happen. Now, just like nature abhors a vacuum, the economy doesn't like a vacuum either. Coming up, I'll tell you what I think is likely to fill the vacuum for these people that need short-term money. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One
0: with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
1: Okay, so what's going to fill the vacuum in the economy, in the marketplace, from payday loans? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. Neither one of them are particularly appealing, although one of them almost is. So we'll go with the very unappealing one first, and that is someone in, in Congress is suggesting that the post office become a bank as well. So if you need a payday loan, you go to your post office and you fill out some forms, probably, sign something, probably, and you get money from the post office. You know, and when you think about it, other than being a taxpayer, that's a pretty brilliant idea because every single zip code in America has a post office. Every post office or the postal department Uh, has never made money, so they don't really have a bottom line. Got employees there that don't care whether you pay back the money or not. So it's a perfect solution with the exception of they're going to throw away a whole lot of taxpayer money doing that. But I could see that happening, couldn't you? I could see going to your local post office and getting a short-term loan limited to... $250 $500 something like that the other solution that I have uh, come across and, and seen possibly working out there is like many other regulations that regulate small businesses out of business is a big business steps in kind of the definition of crony capitalism so let's say a big company says we'll fill that gap like a Walmart Or a Sears or somebody out there okay even a a Google Facebook and Amazon Amazon that you know just thought of that that might be a perfect thing for for Amazon but the point is that a big company that can afford to navigate the regulatory aspect of short-term high-interest loans Walmarts are like post offices. They're in all the communities. Everybody goes in there. And they could essentially be that bank for that sector of the market. Short-term, small loans. um, And they could probably do it for less interest than the mom-and-pop storefront. But the key is... They can afford to go through the regulations they can afford the regulatory aspect now i'm not saying i'm in favor of that i'm in favor of the mom and pop storefronts. okay are they taking advantage of people um one could make that case you could also make the case that nobody's putting a gun to these people's heads to come in there and borrow money so it's a free market Semi free market. And the vast majority of the population, recent polls said 47% said they couldn't come up with $400 for an emergency expense. 47% of the population. So there's a real need. There's a vacuum that people need to be able to have access to short term money. And all Congress is doing is focusing on a few hard luck stories a few stories with very poor judgment, and the annualized amount of interest. And those are really meaningless. Really meaningless. So they're regulating a a sector of the market out of business. It will be filled by something else, either the post office or a big national company, Or something like that local banks won't get into it because it's just not enough money a four five hundred dollar loan just not enough to to cover the paperwork for a community bank or regional bank so it's gonna have to be some type of of retail um, outlet or it's gonna have to be some type of government outlet like the post office now one could make the case if the post office did it right did it like the storefronts then uh, maybe they could make money and help the postal service actually save the taxpayer money but i don't see that happening i i, I just don't see the government um running this efficiently and effectively and being able to uh effectively fill that void in the marketplace and, uh, uh, provide these people with loans. They got to leave the private sector alone. Let them do it. Do some people have bad stories? Sure. Is the interest rate too high? Well, it is for me. I'm not going to borrow money at that kind of rate. But then again, I don't have to, I don't have to be in that position because I have saved money. Up next, Gordon Chang is going to be joining me. He's lived in China and Hong Kong for over 20 years and author of the book, The Coming Collapse
0: of China. We'll talk to him next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Gordon
1: Chang. He's a lawyer and author, has lived in China and Hong Kong for almost two decades, most recently in Shanghai, working as counsel to the American law firm Paul Weiss. He is the author of The Coming Collapse of China. He's a contributor at Forbes.com, and you can find his blog over at worldaffairsjournal.org. We'll put all that information on our website and Facebook. Gordon, welcome back to An Economy of One. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. We haven't talked since CPAC, I think, was the last time we chatted.
2: That's right, and thank you so much. That was a blast.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate your time and giving us so much uh, information. You know, I read your stuff on a regular basis, and you write a lot. Very prolific and very informative. I wanted to talk about a couple things. The first thing I wanted to talk about, geez, I don't think it got much prominent press out there, was the steel transactions going on between China and uh, specifically the United States where they got accused of dumping steel and uh, the United States put, uh, what, a 200% tariff on steel or something with them?
2: That's not the end of it because um, U.S. steel is seeking even further remedies for essentially predatory trade behavior. And this will be important because steel has gotten into the global spotlight. It's not just China and the United States, Mm -hmm. but it's also China and Europe because there is excess steel capacity in China. Um, Beijing has promised to close down mills, but it really hasn't been making very much progress. You know, China has more than half of the world's steelmaking capacity. Obviously, there's much too much. Steel mills are being subsidized by the government. And, of course, the United States and the European Union, among others,
1: are complaining. Right. Now, it's, you know, I'm a big free market guy, and I got my own opinion of this. But, you know, from your experience, I mean, you've got all the experience on the other side of the equation, studying China and Hong Kong and Pacific Rim there, is Dumping steel, is that a legitimate crime, a a legitimate infraction, or are they just selling excess capacity at at a price the market will will take it at?
2: Uh, Great question, and it really depends on how you view trade in general. Um, You know, many people say that uh, dumping penalties are really misconceived, that essentially Mm -hmm. if a country wants to sell below their cost, you know, They should be welcome to do that because it's basically good for consumers. And I can understand that argument. Um, What's different here is that China has, with a really predatory intent, intended to drive out producers around the world by substantially subsidizing their capacity at home well beyond any sort of economic incentive. Um, You know, in a sense, um, you know, the Chinese have been very successful in, you know, in in grabbing uh, market share for steel. Mm I, I tend to believe that this is a policy which is misconceived on the part of the Chinese government because they're going to pay for it more than we will. Um, so it really just depends on, on how you view dumping in general. Um, I, can, you know, I, I can sort of see both sides, but my general feeling is that at some point we do need to protect American workers because Beijing has gone beyond normal mercantilist behavior into places we haven't seen
1: you know, from reading a lot of your columns and some other economists and and experts, can they can the Chinese economy uh, can they can they tolerate supporting industries like this for a lengthy period of time? I mean, do they? You can't support this and have that commodity come back up in price if you're still still cranking out the the uh, supply. Can the Chinese e- economy withstand this?
2: I don't think so. I mean, if your time frame is like a month or two months, the answer is yes, um, Beijing can afford to do this. I mean, they've afforded to do this for a very long time. But the real problem here is that in order to keep these what's called zombie companies going, companies with basically no market, which include many of the steel producers in China, um, it is incurring debt at a frightening pace. Um, China's debt to GDP ratio could very well be in the 300s, and some people even think. In the Aww. 400s. Um, and what's concerning everyone is not just the level of debt, um, but it's the rapid accumulation of debt, especially in the last couple of years, especially after 2008. Um, so there has really been um, a concern that the Chinese are going to face the debt crisis of all time. And that really is the cost of um, maintaining excess steel capacity. So, yes, um, American workers are victims, but the biggest victims at the end are going to be the chinese
1: themselves i got about 10 questions roaming around my head i want to ask you so some of these may be a little non sequitur so forgive me but they i read something that you talked about their debt growing four times faster than their gdp now is that the gdp they tell us uh the rate they tell us or is it the rate that you really think that they're they're growing at
2: Well, that's an excellent question because most observers um, sort of blow by that issue without considering it. The answer is that if you believe China's official GDP numbers, they're creating debt uh, four times faster than gross domestic product. Um, But China's GDP numbers are inflated. Um, We don't know, of course, by how much. Um, But instead of growing at the 6.7% that they claim for the first quarter of this year, Beijing could be growing uh, somewhere in the three to Four percent range, maybe even slower. Q two is even worse than Q one. Q one was worse than 2015. So you know, pick a number. But China could be accumulating debt six or seven times faster than it's creating GDP.
1: Wow. Now they, I forget who coined the phrase, but they had a lot of, shall we say, quantitative easing or monetary infusion in uh, late February or March or something caused a spike. And uh, I don't know if it was you or somebody else. I read that that dubbed that a dead panda bounce. Is, I
2: used the phrase,
1: did you? but. But
2: I have to say, and I wish that I could claim credit for coming up with it, um, but the person who um, actually ended up uh, created that phrase is Ann Stevenson Yang. She is the founder um, behind J Capital Research, oh, okay. which is a very influential um, research house based in Beijing. And, and uh, issued a research note um, with that title. And so every time I've used it, I've had to credit her for it because <laughs> it's such a great phrase, because not only is it catchy, but it is also very much um, is indicative of where China is going, because, as you say, they increased credit in Q1 by uh, about $1 trillion over, uh, uh, qu- a trillion dollars over the quarter before. That's the greatest quarterly increase in credit in Chinese history, uh, more than twice Twice the amount of credit that was created in Q4 2015, wow. and they didn't create very much of the recovery in March, uh, as we saw from April and the first indications
1: for May. That's incredible. We're discussing China. China's Real Economic Numbers with Gordon Chang a contributor at Forbes and blogger at worldaffairsjournal.org and author of the book The Coming Collapse of China. What does that infusion into their their money? What 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 does that do for their economy? I mean, we saw you said there's kind of a blip in in March in economic activity, but you know, we know from from many many years of observation both here and and everywhere else that that is, that is temporary it's a, a shot of adrenaline that eventually disperses out where's their exports their imports where where's their overall standard of living and and uh, economy going
2: well what happened is there was a near uh, this is interesting the chinese economy this year is basically divided into three parts to sort of illustrate what you're talking about there was a near disastrous march uh, february January and February. March, there was the blip that you talked about, which was created by all of this credit being dumped into the economy. There was a very disappointing April, and the first indications for May um, are that uh, May was worse than April. And that's an indication that all of this new money created a small um, uptick in March, and that was it. The idea behind this, most people think, was that the Chinese leaders were trying to show the rest of the world that they had turned a corner. But obviously, they haven't. Um, And what we're going to see going forward is a very weak Q2. Um, We can see this from a number of indications, including um, falls in exports of other countries to China, um, showing that it is a really serious situation inside. The industrial sector is um, contracting. um, And we can see this from imports falling in double digits and exports also down. So this is going to be a big story going forward.
1: What's that done to the currency in relation to other currencies uh, around the world? I mean, specifically dollars. I mean, everybody uh, kind of gears things to dollars. But, you know, about a year ago, wasn't it last August, their currency had a big depreciation against the other world currencies? Same thing happening again? I mean, the, the same policies, same same people in power. Are we going to see a, another devaluation? Uh, I don't.
2: If it's going to be a devaluation, as we saw in August 11th, which they set the currency um, 1.9% below uh, the previous day fix. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also saw a downward movement in January, though I don't think we could call it really a devaluation. It was just a dim- diminution in value. We're starting to see the same thing now in the last two or three days. And the reason is, of course, that Janet Yellen and everybody ex- well, Janet Yellen um, is, is expected to um, increase uh, U.S. the Fed funds rate by a quarter mm-hmm. of a percent. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't sound like much um, to anybody, but to people in China, they can see the dollar starting to strengthen against the renminbi. They think this is a long-term trend, and so money is starting to come out of the country again. This is going to be, uh, I think, China's number one problem is currency flight. And a large part of it is triggered by the sense that the U.S. economy is recovering, the dollar will get stronger, and people will want out of their local currency.
1: Didn't they put on some capital controls of, uh, sticks in my mind, like $50,000 a day, a week, or something like that, that can can leave the country for any individual or company?
2: Yes. Since about uh, September, they have been imposing capital controls. Some of them formally announced, some of them off the books. They're not telling us about that $50,000 number is each year prior to this crisis um, in mid-August, a Chinese citizen could send out of China without approval, 50,000 U.S. dollars. However, they're not allowing people to do that anymore. And so this is an informal control where they're basically putting incredible fees on uh, transfers out, like 8% fee on transfers. They're allowing only people to send out like $1,000 at a time. So this makes it prohibitive to use the banking system them to take money out of china um that fifty thousand rule is still nominally on the books but it's not really um being permitted so people are using all sorts of of underhanded ways to get money out of the country
1: so i've heard those stories and i've i've talked to americans that do business in china and and go back and forth and they they tell interesting stories about capital movement uh gordon i got two more questions uh before i let you go and they're kind of Kind of non sequitur, like I said. One, um, I'm involved in some manufacturing companies here in the United States, uh, and uh, uh, we make different products and that kind of stuff. And I'm starting to see a little bit, a little bit, uh, some of the manufacturing, some of the jobs being repatriated back to the United States. Is that just a coincidence on on what I'm seeing, or is there kind of a uh, almost a trend? Of manufacturing leaving China and some of it coming back home here?
2: Yeah, it's, I think. Uh It is definitely a trend. It's a long-term one. We've been seeing this for the last two or three years of manufacturing coming back to the U.S. In terms of manufacturing leaving China, that's gone on for about a decade at the low end. So you have a lot of manufacturers going to Vietnam, uh, Bangladesh, Jordan, Mexico, Egypt, you name it, um, because essentially um, wage rates are now favoring other countries, as well as the Chinese are starting to actually enforce environmental rules on factories. That is really pushing a lot of the low-cost manufacturers out of the country. But the trend that you talk about, manufacturing come back to the U.S., I think is largely because a number of other costs are cheaper in the U.S. And also American companies realize you've got to be close to your consumer, and yep. they're worried about all sorts of things in China, including political risk.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I was picking up on. Final question for you. we got one minute left, Gordon. What about the new family policies in china you know it was always you know, a family could have one child and now they're going to two children i think what, what kind of effect is that going to have demographically going forward and and is that a good thing for them
2: that people are allowed to have more children, of course, but they still have to get birth permits for the second child. Mm -hmm. I mean, this will have a beneficial economic effect 15, 16 years from now. But in the meantime, it's going to worsen their dependency ratio, um, as you know, because you're going to have people under age 15 um, who worsen the ratio.
1: My goodness. Well, we've been speaking with Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China. He writes for Forbes.com and has a blog on World Affairs Journal. Org. Gordon, once again, this has been a true delight for me. I really appreciate your time. And uh, we consider you our resource on China and hoping to talk again soon.
2: Well, thank you so much. I
0: really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Coming up, is our economy much better than China's? We'll talk about that next.
0: An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
1: You know, I'm talking to Gordon Chang about uh, China's GDP numbers and their their job creation and that kind of stuff. Um, our story isn't much better here in this country. Uh, for the last 10 years, we've... Uh, uh been growing at less than two percent each year on the gdp president obama's entire tenure as president every year has been below two percent growth and that's unprecedented i mean coming out of a big recession deep recession we ought to have some time in there where we have significant growth so what's killing the growth what's preventing us from having significant growth well the economy is very complex. There's no no simple answer to that. I can't say, oh, well, let's fix this and we're good. But some of the main things that are easy to point out that, that stifling the economy is one – And we've talked about this many, 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 many times, regulatory aspect of the economy. There are rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. And one of the things that sticks out is what they call occupational licensing. In 1950, only 5% of the workers in the United States needed a license or a certificate. Today, it's almost 30%. 30%. So... Just about everybody needs a license, and some of those are are really, really dumb. They're, They're designed to limit competition. They're designed to keep people from getting into a profession and learning it as they go. Let's take hairstylists, barbers, for example. You know what my dad always used to say growing up? There's only three days difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut. I mean, you go to a bad barber, what's the worst that can happen? You have a lousy haircut, and it grows back, and you'd never go back to that person again. So they have a motivation for doing a good job. Okay, nail people. What do you call them? Uh, manicurists. You know what's the worst that can happen? Okay, you don't like the polish. You, they, they they cut them too short. They leave them too long. What what's what can happen? Your fingers aren't going to fall off. You'll just not go to that person again. If you don't get a satisfactory result from the first time, but yet all these people have to have licensing, they have to have schooling, they have uh, regular uh, annual fees they have to pay, and it's a it's a it, it's an economic barrier. Fortune tellers have to have a license. Why? What? 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 I mean that, that's that's mind numbing. Why would a fortune teller need a license if not for the sole purpose of the community collecting fees? All of us know, well, at least I know, fortune tellers cannot tell the future. So if they ramble on and I want to give them money to ramble, uh, where's the harm? Where's the harm? The other thing that's stifling growth is the barrier to starting new businesses. On average, the cost of federal regulatory compliance for a small business, meaning businesses with less than 19 employees, that's small. The cost per employee per year is $10,585. $10,000 per employee per year for federal regulatory compliance compliance now you cannot grow an economy if you are not creating new businesses you gotta create new businesses every year more than the businesses that go out of business every year and for the last several years more people more businesses have gone out of business than have been started There's our problem. Most of the jobs are created by small businesses. It's critical. Critical. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathbun. We'll see you next time.
0: This is our country.
2: The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.